My name is Kristen Paleo. I'll be reading the scripture this morning. It's found in the book of John, chapter 3, verses 1 through 15. If you'd like to follow along, it will be on the screen. It's also in the Pew Bible, page 834. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, Unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Thank you, Kristen, for reading our scripture for this morning. If you're a child ages four through kindergarten, you can be dismissed right now for Children's Church. Uh, They'll go and hear a gospel lesson at an age-appropriate level, and they'll be back with us. And if you're one of the kids who's sticking with us in the the, uh, worship service through the sermon, and you want to draw a picture on the piece of paper in the back of the pew there, you can draw, I want you to picture the worst storm that you've ever been in. Uh, What was the worst thunderstorm or, or something like that that you've been a part of? And I want you to try to draw a picture of that. And has, has been custom, adults, if that helps you focus on the sermon, go for it too. We've got some great ones if you're new here. All the drawings on the wall out there are all from uh, sermons that we've had this summer. And some of them are not by kids, before you get amazed that we have uh, some sort of prodigy in our midst. <laughs> but our text for this morning in John chapter 3 is one of the most famous texts in John's gospel. Now, we cut off right before the most famous verse, and Noah's going to preach that in a little bit after next week for us. But likely, whether you are here this morning and you're a Christian or not, you're familiar with, or at least have heard the phrase, born again. It's not quite as common now, but for many years, people commonly referred to themselves as born-again Christians. You'd hear athletes or politicians or other public figures say that they were a born-again Christian. And the phrase really culturally began to take to itself a a description of a certain brand of Christianity. 
So born-again Christianity was Christianity that had like a special sauce to it. It was Christianity of Christians that were really serious about their faith. But as you begin to search the scriptures for what they say about being born again, what you realize is saying, I'm a born-again Christian, is about the same thing as saying, hey, I just went to the pool yesterday and jumped into some super wet water. They're the same thing. To be born again is simply what it means to be a Christian. And so what I hope to show you from this text this morning is that the new birth is the foundational reality of the Christian life. As Jesus himself puts it in verse 7, if you want to enter into the kingdom of heaven, you must be born again. And so I pray that we would take his message seriously this morning. Would you pray with me as we begin our study of John 3? Lord Jesus, reminded of the words from John chapter 1 where the, the one follower of Jesus says, Lord, to who, else, to who else will we go? For you alone have the words of eternal life. And Lord, we, we come to you this morning because we know that we need life, and we know life comes from you, the one who John says has life in himself, Jesus Christ. And so Lord, I pray that as we open your word that we would meet with you this morning and that you would change us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, as we talk about the new birth this morning, my outline for us is really simple. I, I want to ask three questions of what it means to be born again. So, first, why do we need the new birth? Second, what is the new birth? What's the nature of the new birth? And lastly, how do we receive the new birth? So, why do we need it? What is it? And how do we receive it? So first, why do we need the new birth? And to understand why you and I need to be born again, we first have to understand a bit about Nicodemus. You see, because before Jesus' words about being born again are addressed to us as readers of the scripture, they were spoken directly into this man's experience. Jesus tailored this specific description of what it looks like to have life with Jesus to Nicodemus' personal experience and who he is. So who was Nicodemus? We read in verse 1 that he was a Pharisee and that he was a ruler of the Jews, which means that he was on this Jewish ruling council called the Sanhedrin. Now, it's easy for us, I think, as, as some of us who have been Christians for a long time and have heard many sermons and have read the New Testament, and you see the way that Jesus addresses the Pharisees, it's very easy for us to think Pharisee, bad guy. Like the, the Darth Vader Imperial March starts going off in your head when you hear Pharisee. But I don't think that's exactly a good way to think, because to the average Jewish person, the Pharisees were well-respected. They were the most right-up-the-middle kind of religious teachers of their day, and, and people respected them. And it's hard to convey what Nicodemus was, actually, to somebody in our day. So think of a morally reputable politician and religious leader, which 
you know, those three things together are kind of hard to come by, <laughs> right? Uh, but, but even then, think of it this way. This is the way I made it the most concrete in my mind. Like, Jewish moms wanted their sons to grow up and be like Nicodemus. They wanted them to grow up to be men like Nicodemus. But not only this, we read in verse 2 that he was spiritually seeking. So he had seen Jesus' signs, and at least on the surface level, was, was curious and came to Jesus to ask more questions about what he was doing. So why in the world, for this man who is upright, who is a supreme example of a Jewish man, who, who comes to Jesus seeking, would Jesus say to him, cha- seemingly change the subject in verse 3, and say to him, you must be born again. Unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Why does he do that? Well, in order to understand the way Jesus responds to him, I think it's important for us to backtrack back into the passage that Pastor Benjamin spoke about last week in John chapter 2. And when we read the end of John chapter 2 into John chapter 3, a lot of things come to light for us. So if you would, look with me at John chapter 2, starting in verse 23, and we'll read down to verse 3. And remember, chapter breaks were not original to your Bible. Sometimes they're helpful, other times they're not. This is an area where we're probably better off without one as this flows together. So let's start in chapter 2, verse 23. It says, Now when he, Jesus, was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Now watch this. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, isn't that interesting? When you read that whole text together, Jesus knew what was in man, and he did not entrust himself to man. Now there was a man named Nicodemus. It's like, okay, John, we see what you're doing. As we saw last week, the heart of every person, you and I alike, is deceptive and, as Jeremiah says, desperately wicked. Jesus knows the nature of humankind's heart, and he knows that Nicodemus is a human. And so rather than immediately saying, your desires are good, Nicodemus, you come to me seeking what is right and good, instead he challenges his very desires and goes to the root and says, unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. As verse six, as Jesus says in verse 6, every person born of the flesh is flesh meaning everyone born by natural birth has the same evil heart that their parents did. And no one is excluded, not even morally upright, upstanding Nicodemus. You see, when, Jesus, or when Nicodemus comes to Jesus in verse 2, think more about how he comes to Jesus. I think to try to get this to lock in our mind, think of Nicodemus as, as an academic. So somebody that works 
in a college setting. He treats Jesus like a faculty member at a school would treat a colleague, another faculty member coming to him and meeting him in the lounge in between classes. So Nicodemus addresses Jesus with respect. He says, Rabbi, teacher, He acknowledges the legitimacy of his academic credentials. He says, we've seen the signs that you've been doing. Clearly, you're from God. But do you see what's really happening here? Nicodemus approaches Jesus as his equal, or at least somebody that's in the same league as him, as his fellow teacher. He sees Jesus as a man from whom he can glean wisdom and advice about his areas of interest and expertise. And Jesus cuts through all of that and says, you must be born again. Essentially, Jesus is saying, your credentials, your status as a teacher and leader of Israel means nothing. You have to go back to entry-level courses. You don't just have to go back to freshman 101. You've got to go back to kindergarten and relearn this thing from the ground up. You are no different from anyone else. Think about this. Jesus tells this man, who likely had taught other young men and women, young Jewish pupils, what it meant to enter the kingdom of God. And Jesus says, you can't enter the kingdom of God unless you've been born again. And it's the same with us. Jesus says to even the most religious among us, those who have been church members for years and years, those who have the most status, not only in the eyes of the world, but in the eyes of your particular religious communities, those with the best moral track record and intellect, you must be born again. Jesus is saying to you this morning, even if you think you have your life put together, unless you have been born again, you don't know what true life really is. Unless you are given this gift called a new birth, your, your heart cannot even see, verse 3, let alone enter, verse 5, the kingdom of God. And so that's why we all need a new birth. So what's the nature of that new birth? So, so what is it and, and what does it bring to us? Well, first, the new birth is resurrection. The new birth is a resurrection. So if you look with me at verse 5, Jesus says this cryptic thing in verse 5. He says, Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now, what is he talking about there? What do water and Spirit refer to in verse 5? Well, I think of no coincidence of ours, you've been queued up well to answer that question. So Pastor David read Ezekiel 36 as our assurance of pardon earlier in the service after our confession of sin. And in Ezekiel 36, God promises through the prophet Ezekiel that even though the people are filthy, that God will cleanse them with water and give them a new heart by his spirit. And and what Jesus is saying is that that, Nicodemus, is what you need in order to enter the kingdom of heaven. Water is an image for the life of God's spirit, which he pours out on people to wash them clean. And what God's saying is, you need a real cleansing 
right? You, you don't just need a 15-minute tidying up before dinner, Nicodemus, like you think you need. You don't just need a few squirts of hand sanitizer on your heart. In college, I was an RA, and one of the quads that, that I was over, um, it had a few athletes in it, and for whatever reason, I don't know if it was a sick pact or something, but these guys just refused to clean their shower for an entire semester. And I find them, like they were paying, like all of them were paying 150 bucks twice a week at a certain point, but like none of them would do it. They didn't clean their shower. And we had hockey players and stuff on that. It was gross, absolutely gross. And by the end of the semester, that shower was black. It was black. It had a layer of grit and grime. And I, I remember clear as day, we, we struck a deal. I, I did this with my buddy who was an RA, and we would have people pay us if they didn't want to clean at the end of the semester. And, uh, and of course, that quad paid us, and we upcharged them significantly, made some good money off that shower. But it took a long time and serious chemicals to get that thing looking remotely close to, to good. And we several times thought about just lighting a match and <laughs> tearing it out and installing a new shower. But what Jesus is saying here is that our hearts are like that. It's not just like a little layer of dust. We need the divine cleansing agent of the Spirit to break in and wash us clean. And as we're talking about this, at what the new birth is, I want to be perfectly clear about something with you all this morning. It is very easy for us to think about the new birth, to think about the foundational reality of the Christian life as something of a discovery. Now, let me tell you what I mean by that. Essentially, every other religion or worldview says that in order for you to be reborn, what you need to do is you need to discover something. You need to either look deep within yourself and discover something you didn't know was there before, or you need to discover the right principles out there, maybe with the help of the right religious teacher or guide, in order to know how to live. Rebirth is discovery. That's the posture of the religious person like Nicodemus, right? He simply views Jesus as a fellow teacher who's going to help him and others discover the right teaching to live by in order that their life can actually be what it needs to be in order to enter the kingdom of God. But I would submit to you that this is also the attitude and posture of the average person today in America who says that in order to be reborn, or to use another word, in order to self-actualize, you have to look deep down into yourself and find who you truly are, discover who you truly are. And then, as you discover who you truly are and live out of that, then you are reborn. Then that's the salvation narrative of our culture. But what Jesus is saying here is that none of these discovery narratives, whether religious or irreligious, are radical enough. We need something so radical that he calls it new birth, that it's actually like starting life over again from scratch. That's what we need. We don't need to just discover something, a truth within us or a truth out there. We need a divine renovation. Or to put it in the language that the rest of the Bible uses, we need a resurrection. And this is how the Apostle Paul describes 
the new birth in Ephesians chapter 2. If you want to turn there with me, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. This is what the Apostle Paul says. In in verse 1, he mentions, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. But then in verse 4, it says, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. When a person is born again, the living Jesus implants his own resurrection life, his own eternal life into their heart. Resurrection breaks into your present reality when you are born again. You see how different this is from just discovering a truth out there or in here. Something new from above has to break into your reality and raise you to life. New birth is not just a moral improvement program. And Nicodemus and many of us would have no problem with that if Jesus just said, you need some new principles or you need to go deeper into yourself and find yourself. Moral improvement plans keep the status quo. The new birth blows up our self-reliant systems and brings a whole new life. Better yet, it resurrects us from a way of living that, that more closely resembles death into new life, what's truly alive, eternal life springing up into you and me. And this truth is an encouragement to the person without social status or if your life is a complete train wreck. If that is you this morning, the new birth is good news. You see, Jesus says to the religious, put-together man, Nicodemus, you must be born again. But he says to the person, to you, if your life is a wreck, if you don't have what the world says you need in order to be someone, he says to you, you can be born again. Your unimpressiveness and failure perfectly qualify you to be given the gift of resurrection life. What the new birth says to you, if that is you, is that your regrets about what you've done in the past, your shame about what you're doing in the present, and your despair for what you're convinced will happen in your future are no match for God's resurrection power given to you in Christ. The new birth is good news because it is resurrection. That's what the new birth is. Now, still, what the nature of it is, what does it bring? It brings transformation. Let's look at John chapter 3, verse 8 again. John chapter 3, verse 8. And if you're drawing those pictures of your storm, this is where that links in here into this text. So Jesus says, The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is, with everyone who was born of the Spirit. Now, as you all are drawing those pictures, if I wasn't preaching today and I was sitting listening to this sermon, I know exactly what storm I would draw. So in order to afford my wife Whitley's engagement ring in college, uh, I worked in one of those fireworks tents that pop up around the 4th of July. So uh, 
it's actually like pretty good money if you ever need money. Uh, if it's only like eight days of work, but it's like 24-7. But, but the job required that you sleep in your tent or in close proximity to your tent because you kept all your merchandise there overnight. And the, first, the very first night that I did this, a horrible storm rolled in in the middle of the night. And I'm, I'm, I'm laying there in this tent. All of a sudden, it rained so hard and so fast that like a river of water started rushing through this tent. And I had a bunch of fireworks on the ground. So I'm scrambling, trying to pick them up and put them on tables so that I don't ruin a bunch of these fireworks and got it all set. And eventually, I couldn't lay back down because the ground was all wet. And so I, uh, I, I got in my car and slept the rest of my night in the car. But I was completely unaware that a tornado touched down and blew through the golf course right across the street from where I was sleeping. So completely unaware. So the next morning, I get out of my car and I wake up and I'm like, this is the apocalypse. Like, that's that's what I'm looking at right now. Like, there was this huge tree. I remember it so vividly. This huge tree that had literally been cut in half, it looked like, and was splintered hunched over in half. It was wild. And I was like, I slept right there. And I didn't see the wind. I didn't see the tornado touch down. I didn't see the wind knock that tree over. But let me tell you, when I woke up that morning, I saw its effects. And that's what Jesus is saying about when the Spirit of God blows into the human heart. We can't see the Spirit of God acting. His work is mysterious and unseen. Just like the wind, we can't make him go where we want him to go and do what we want him to do. But we know when he's been at work because our lives bear the marks of his work. In other words, the new birth is an interior, internal reality, but it has external, perceivable effects. The Spirit's work of resurrection in our hearts leads to transformed living. And this, is, this, this passage gets at one of the foundational realities of the Christian life that flows from the new birth. Is that as a Christian, you are not what you do, but rather you do things out of who you are most deeply. And this is exactly what Jesus says in verse 6. This is what he's getting at here. Look with me at verse 6. We looked at the first half of this already earlier in the sermon, but he says, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. So to put this a different way, ants act like ants, not like, not like ants, like A-U-N-S-T or N-T-S, however you spell that, but like the insect, ants. Ants act like ants because they are ants. Right? So they have certain instincts and abilities because of the kind of creature that they are. That ants don't eat bananas and swing from trees because they're not monkeys, they're ants. That's who they are. A picture a zookeeper trying to train an ant to swing from trees and live off of bananas. We would want that person to get some help. But when we are born again, our actions do change, but not in a way like trying to feed an ant a banana. Our actions change because who we most deeply are down deep, who we are most fundamentally changes. We become new creatures. 
We are no longer of the flesh, as it says in verse 6, but we are born again by the Spirit as spirit, as spirit people, to paraphrase verse 6. And that's why it's called new birth. It brings about such a radical transformation at the core of who we are. It's like being transformed into a new creature, starting life all over again with a different set of instincts and desires. It leads to a different life altogether. And so now the question for us is, do our lives look like we have been made new creatures? Are the trees of your life blowing as it will? Are you sprouting up the fruit of the Spirit? Can you see the Spirit's power at work in your life? Now, as I ask that question, let me just make this caveat. It is hard to judge this because just like all babies come out of the womb looking different, having a different amount of hair, acting differently. Some come out screaming, some come out almost asleep. So all of us are born again in a different way. So some of you, if we talk to one another, have, have stories of your conversion that are radical. Like Jesus saved you from radical things in a radical way and, and your transformation was quick and extreme. But for others of us, you've experienced small incremental growth over a long period of time. And you maybe can't remember the day or even the year of your conversion. But all you can say is you can point back and you say, Jesus changed me. I don't know exactly when, but he, he changed me. And if you want a biblical example of that, look at Nicodemus. Nicodemus just kind of fades out of this text and we don't get a statement later in John's gospel that says, and on this day, Nicodemus was born again. But if you look at the wind of the Spirit in Nicodemus' life, if you turn to John chapter 19, you'll see that one of the two men that asks for Jesus' body is Nicodemus. Why would he do this unless he had been radically transformed. It was a social risk. Why would he want to be seen with this disgraced savior of this fringe group of people? His life was changed. That's why. He'd been born again. And so I ask this question about the Spirit's work and power and effect in your life, not, not to rack real Christians with guilt. But I do ask to those of you who have been close to church, who are good, moral, upright citizens like Nicodemus, and yet if you're really honest with yourself, you've been looking on at Christ from the sidelines. Jesus wants you to be transformed by the power of his Holy Spirit, and he can do that today. And so how does it happen? Last question, last point. How do we receive the new birth? And there's one thing that I have assumed for the entirety of this sermon. You might have picked up on it. It might have eked out in some of the way I've been talking, but I haven't explicitly stated it. And that's this. You can't just go and be born. Like, you can't choose to go and be born. You didn't decide one day 
to start growing in your mother's womb, and then nine months from when you wanted to make your grand entrance onto the stage of life. Some of you, when you came out, it maybe seemed that way, but that doesn't happen to any of us. We can't will our new birth any more than we can will our first birth. You can't earn it. You can't work for it. You can't make it happen. Instead, you must receive it. It's something that must be done to you. And so Nicodemus rightly cries out in verse 9, how can these things be? And there's a way in which that's true and appropriate for all of us. That should be our posture. How can this be then? How can I receive something like this? How does that happen? How does this reality become mine that you're describing, Jesus? Well, Jesus tells us how in verses 14 and 15. And in these verses, he references a a relatively obscure story from the history of Israel all the way back in Numbers chapter 21. This is what he says in John 3, 14 and 15. He says, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Now, for those of you who, who aren't familiar with this story that he's, he's kind of sideswiping here, uh, in the story in Numbers 21, what happens briefly is the Israelites grumble against the Lord as they were prone to do from time to time. And so as a punishment for their sin, the Lord lets these poisonous snakes infest and overtake the camp. And they bite the people and a number of them die from how poisonous these snake bites were. And so the people come to Moses, and they confess their sin. They say, we were wrong, Lord. And so God tells Moses, okay, I'm going to show mercy on the people. And so what I want you to do is I want you to make a serpent out of bronze and put it on a pole, and I want you to stick that pole in the center of the camp and raise it up. And the people who are in the camp, merely as they're hunched over, feverish, in pain, All they have to do is look to the serpent, and they're healed of the serpent's bites. And so, what in the world does that have to do with receiving new birth? What is Jesus getting at? Well, in John's gospel, when Jesus talks about being lifted up, he's talking about being lifted up on the cross. He's talking about his death. You see, Jesus was lifted up on the cross so that you and I could have new life, eternal life, so that we could be born again. Do you see what Jesus is saying here then? He's saying, I am the serpent lifted up. I took the poison of the serpent's curse of sin on the cross. I submitted to the anguish of death so that you might be healed. You see, in love, Jesus suffered the anguish of a mother in labor so that he might give birth to a new family, a family born, as it says in John 1, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And so how do you and I receive this new birth? All we have to do is what the Israelites did. We just have to look. We simply look to the Son of Man. 
the serpent lifted up, the one who labored in agony of love so that we could be born again to the family of God. We look to him and we're born again. And the beautiful part about this is that anyone can look. It takes no qualifications to look. From the most put-together professional like Nicodemus to the most worn-down, suffering sinner. From the richest person to the poorest person. From the most devout, religious person to the person here this morning sitting in church for maybe the first time in your life. Anyone can turn their eyes from their own efforts and their accomplishments and their resumes and look to Christ It's not the strength of your effort. You are the baby being born. It's about the strength and sacrifice of the Lord Jesus who labored so that you might experience new birth by his grace. As Bible commentator J.C. Ryle says, the feeblest look brought cure to an Israelite and the weakest faith, if true and sincere, brings salvation to sinners. And so, if you are unsure this morning whether or not you've been born again, think of Jesus' labor of love. Sit with your need for new life and your complete inability to bring this birth about in yourself. And as you do that, I pray that the Spirit of God would blow his new life into the bones of your heart and that as you look to Christ lifted up that you would be resurrected. And for those of us here this morning who do experience the wind of the Spirit blowing in our lives, who are new creatures, who are being transformed, I would encourage you with the exact same thing. Look to Christ, the serpent lifted up. Ponder today why you need the resurrection life of Jesus inside of you today and return to his love shown towards you and experience new life. Be renewed in the new life that he has given to you as you look to him. And through looking to Jesus, may he resurrect and renew us all by the power of his Holy Spirit. You must be born again. But by looking to the serpent, the mother who labored so that we could be born in Jesus Christ, you can be born again. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would bring new life to our hearts today by looking to the one who suffered in agony for us in order that we could be born again, in order that we could be made new creatures. Lord, I pray that our lives would be lived out of that resurrection power, consciously looking to you as our Savior. I pray that the truth of the new birth would comfort comfort hearts that are dejected, that it would challenge hearts that are prideful, and it would bring new life, true life, and true joy to all of us who look to Jesus Christ in saving faith. We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen.